All right, go ahead and open it to uh, Ephesians 5. We'll look at Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. And we are talking about family economics, why families matter. And uh, we're, this morning we'll, we'll deal with husbands and wives. So let's stand together for the reading of God's word from Ephesians 5, <clears throat> 5 verse 22. These are the words of God. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands uh, in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does, also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Our Father in God, the source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and minds may be opened. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. When uh, choosing a name for this series, I settled on the near-redundant phrase, family economics, uh, particularly because the, the word economy, at its root, means the law of the house. That's really what, when we say the word econ economic or economy, we're talking about the law of the house. Uh, the Greek word oikos means house, and nemen means to deal out. Uh, so those words put together get us where we need to be. Uh, when Paul speaks of the stewardship from God in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, the word that's translated as stewardship is oikonomian, that is the stewardship or the administration or the, the uh, management of, of a household. Uh, the Greeks used this word to describe how a family managed itself, a family unit managing its property, its wealth, um, its basic household functions. Our English word economics then comes from, from this idea. So the family then is central to things like property, education, uh, training, wealth, healthcare, uh, stewardship. All of those things are things that come out of the family. And economics divorced from the family will invariably mean that the state will control economics as the new family. And uh, I don't need to really, this to state the obvious, you are watching this unfold in our day. So property is managed. I mean, that was one of uh, Karl Marx's big thing with the Communist Manifesto. Uh, you will own no property. And Schwab has said as much today too. 
They always are nice, though, about it. You will own nothing and be happy. So I appreciate that. Thank you. I want to be happy. At any rate, I share all of this because the household exists because marriage exists. Household economics are, are something that's downstream from a marriage. And marriage exists, we know, because the triune Godhead has chosen to make masculine men and feminine women exist in, in a certain relationship. So institutionally, a marriage, we know, is what begets a family. And within the marriage, there is a particular orientation and purpose to it. It's not just something we do. Oh, that's right, we do that here in the West. And there's something theological going on. We know that God has set the terms and conditions. It is a covenant, after all. And when men and women in cultures honor this particular covenant, covenantal blessings ensue. So marriage is a covenant within God's larger covenants, and it must be viewed this way. Uh, The minute we start talking, uh, and I mentioned this last week, talking like Matt Walsh did with Joe Rogan on the podcast and saying things like, well, marriage is just good for society, and it's all pragmatism. And not once did Walsh say, no, marriage is a God-ordained covenantal institution, and societies are committing suicide if they do not honor it and treasure it the way it's supposed to be. So the word marriage comes from the word marry, M-A-R-R-Y, and when a man and a woman marry, the root of that word comes from the same root where we get the word masculine. Etymology is really fun. Meritus which is the Latin word, is, is actually a masculine word. And the definition then is to be joined to a man. That was the idea of marriage, of somebody getting married. It's to be joined to a man. Thus, marriage is the covenantal bond that's established between a man and a woman. But it's not just established between a man and a woman. It is between a man and a woman under God's authority. And so, lest we be tempted to do what the rest of the world's doing, remember everything is under God's authority, especially in including marriage. So having considered what it means to be masculine men and feminine women, that's what we've talked about so far, we obviously now come to the natural discussion about the purpose of marriage, the orientation that husbands and wives must have towards the great calling God has placed upon the institution of marriage. And I'll just say this kind of on the front end, but marriage is for dominion. That's partly what Genesis 2 is getting at. Marriage is for dominion. It's not for explicit, uh, I just want to show someone how much I love them. That is a helpful part, but marriage is for dominion, and dominion, we know, must be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at our passage here, and we'll kind of walk through it. Next to Genesis 2, Ephesians 5 is considered one of the, mo- the foremost passages regarding the institution of marriage. Generally speaking, all Christians, if you back up to verse 21, all Christians are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, right? So don't miss that because back when Paul wrote the letter, he didn't pause and then put the section header in there. <laughs> this is, there were no breaks. It was just letters and words put together. But don't miss that, that all Christians, just generally speaking, all Christians are subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And that sort of sets the tone for the rest of this. But within, let me say it a different way, because that can be confusing too. But within the Christian church, 
we have, relationally speaking, an obligation of submission towards one another. Uh, all of us together, not just you have an obligation to submit to me or the elders, right? This is everyone submits to everyone in some degree um, because none of us uh, are on really the hierarchical uh, food chain, so to speak. It's us and the Lord. We are the bride of Christ together. And we all have different functions and gifts and roles and, and different things that we're doing. But ultimately, it's, we are the bride of Christ. It's, it's Christ who has, he's the groom. But we have an obligation towards each other. And Paul says it best in Philippians 2, 3. We're supposed to consider others as more important as ourselves. And, you know, that's, that's like the secret to child rearing. <laughs> and we'll get into that in a couple of weeks. But consider someone more important than yourself. And when everybody does that, everyone feels important. <laughs> and when everybody does that, then everything is moving in the way it should be. But in verse 22 here, Paul shifts to the family. Wives are to be oriented to their husbands in submission as to the Lord. So submission means to be placed under the head of the covenant. So you're under the head of the covenant, which in this case is the husband, and he, we know, bears the covenantal responsibility. The covenant is only going to be as good as the husband is. And when that breaks down, the family breaks down. But both parties are entering into the covenant, but they're entering into this covenant of marriage with prearranged uh, responsibilities. God has already told us what those things are supposed to look like. A wife's subjection to the Lord ought to be expressed in her subjection to her husband. It's just like that with children. Children are to honor their father and mother, and that subjection to their parents is a form of subjection to the Lord. And same thing here for the wife. Now, submission means being a servant helper. So don't miss that. We'll come back to that. But submission means being a servant helper. Submission isn't being a doormat. That sort of doormat theology. Uh, because if I were to instruct my children to go steal a bunch of stuff from the gas station, they have an obligation to fear God more. And they say, no, I will not do that. And that would be righteous. Just like if the magistrate starts getting out of his lane, then we say, no, thank you. Not even thank you, just no. Yeah. <laughs> but um, submission isn't being a doormat. Rather, submission is being a glorious help meet. That's what the wife is. And let us not forget that Christ was and is equal with God. However, he willingly humbled himself, flip back to Philippians 2 again, offering his life up to the will of the Father. So when wives submit as an equal, they are like Christ in this way, submitting uh, to a head, a head of the covenant. And in 1 Corinthians 11, the head of Christ is God. Um, so the, we've gotten, especially with the rise of feminism, this idea that submission is, you know, you have to do whatever he says, whenever he says it. And any good husband is is not going to function that way he doesn't function like a marxist in the home uh, or he shouldn't um, submission is being a servant help meet a servant helper and knowing and then especially wives you have the great comfort of knowing that uh, the responsibility falls on your husband which should make you pray for him 
and, and, and sometimes it's like, you know, maybe your prayer is like, Lord, this guy's a fool. Would you deal with him? <laughs> Be careful, man. That's a scary prayer. But the reason Paul uh, gives for this is because the husband is the head of the wife. And this is a reflection of the great covenantal reality that Christ is also, he is head of the church. That's in verse 23. So Jesus is the Savior of the body of Christ, the church, which means when, we, when he says that, he means he's the deliverer, he's the sustainer. That's what headship means. Uh, the husband, in his position of headship, is to mimic Jesus' headship over the church. And remember that Adam was trained in responsibility and obedience before he got married. He was supposed to be trained, and he was being trained in maturity, Eventually, he was to partake of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. They seized that. that was, immaturity usually is trying to seize authority before its time. So Adam, Adam was trying to be, he was to be trained. He was to grow, to mature. He was to trust God, to be in fellowship with God. He was to work and keep. We, we know that. And, but essentially, we come to the Lord Jesus. And what do we see with Jesus? Well, Jesus grows in wisdom and stature with men. That's Genesis language. He's growing in wisdom and maturity. He's doing what Adam should have done, but he's doing that before he's married. So Adam needed to learn these things before it was married. It's good for a young man to learn how to manage his finances, how to uh, you know, know how to do things before a wife comes along so that there isn't that awkward dynamic of, well, he's really immature and now I have to fix him. And then you have marriages that are challenging. But Jesus, before he got his bride, he learned to grow in wisdom and stature just like Adam, which makes sense because he's the second Adam. Now, men are called to this same sort of servant lordship. Uh, they will be heads of the covenant, but the question is, which kind? Will he be a godly lord or will he be a pagan dictator in the home? Now, we can say thus that the church is subject to Christ in all obedience and faithfulness. Verse 24, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, husbands are not primarily helpers. Wives are helpers. Doesn't mean you can't help cook dinner or, you know, work together. There's, there's no like strict rule on these things. But the wives are primarily the helpers, not the husbands. Their orientation in this covenant relationship is toward the husband. And we'll come back to this in a, in a bit. In verse 25 through 27, uh, Paul brings it back to the husbands. They are to love their wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. So Christ in this relationship with the church uh, nourishes the church. He nourishes the church. What is the husband supposed to do? Well, he's supposed to nourish his family. How does he nourish his family? He provides for their needs. And Paul warns us in 1 Timothy about being worse than an unbeliever if you are not providing for the needs of your family, which doesn't just mean your wife and kids. The family unit was much more expansive during this time. So we're talking about parents even. We're talking about extended network of, of provision. 
So he, he cherishes, he nourishes by providing, he cherishes by providing warmth, the warmth of love in the relationship. So the husband is to be a tender caretaker for his wife and not a blockheaded fool. He is to protect her so that she is without stain. Um, th- there's a lot that could be said here. Some of it will come out later, but that's the, that's the key emphasis of Paul's theology of marriage is that just as Christ and what he does for the church, so the husband is supposed to do for the wife. Now, obviously, the, the husband doesn't die to give her eternal life. But there is that sacrificial aspect of masculinity that expresses itself in, in the marriage relationship. Now, Paul even says in verse 28 that the husband's love for the wife ought to be commensurate with the love that he has for his own body. So you take care of yourself, you take care of your nourishment, so do that for your wife and your kids. Uh, The unity of a husband and and a wife, the unity that they have in a marriage, is underscored by the fact that loving someone else is like loving oneself. True love means taking care of one's own flesh, nourishing and cherishing life, which is what Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body, verses 29 through 30. So that love that we have, generally speaking, for ourselves and taking care of ourselves, that ought to be cared for in the marriage relationship. So a husband who loves his wife, I mean, he's loving himself. Why? There's a unity. The, uh, the Hebrew, Hebrews would talk about God's unity, his essential oneness. It's echad, it's his... Uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right, in the Shema. So there's that unity in marriage that you have. So loving your wife is like loving your own self, and loving your own self is providing for her. And so that's the, the logic here. I love what Calvin said. He said, Every man by his very nature loves himself, but no man can love himself without loving his wife. Therefore, the man who does not love his wife is a monster. Harsh words from Calvin, but true. You cannot actually love yourself now that you're in a marriage relationship. You can't love yourself if if you don't love your wife, and you can't love your wife if you don't love yourself. So there's a lot psychologically that could be discussed there. In quoting Genesis 2, Paul sees a man leaving his father and mother, and uh, he quotes Genesis 2 here in verse 31. He sees a man leaving his father and his mother, being joined to his wife as being the beginning of a new family unit. There's a oneness unity of unbreakable love. So this idea that this is a struggle, especially in our very independent Western culture, but when you leave and cleave, as we say, you are starting a brand new family, and that is your primary obligation. And I know it can get really cantankerous with in-laws, because we joke about it sometimes, like, oh, my mother-in-law or my father-in-law. And, you know, we want to love and, and develop those relationships, but at the end of the day, your priority is that new family you have established. And so that needs to be uh, taken care of, and then you can go from there. Now, all of this is a mystery, but behind it is the fact that Jesus left his father, father's home So Jesus models this for us. He left his father's home. He took on flesh. He died for his bride, and he was raised into into glory. So he is the second Adam who defeated the devil dragon in order to get the girl. That's the story of Scripture. And because of this, he got himself a bride unified by covenant. And so husbands, 
You are to love your wife, and wives, you are to respect your husband. That is verse 33. So in Paul's eyes, the doctrine of marriage between a man and a woman is actually a picture, and this is something I always emphasize in ceremonies that I do, this is a picture, or perhaps you might even say a mirror, of the covenantal relationship between Christ and the church. So when we attend a wedding celebration and a ceremony, a lot of times it's like, oh, look at the couple, this is all about them. And I always swoop in and say, it's not about them, it's about Christ and the church, and I always get some interesting comments afterwards. But but that's what it is. That's what it is. That's what Ephesians 5 teaches us, is that your marriage is a picture of this relationship. It's an echo of the relationship that Jesus has with his church. And so it needs to look like that. So to recap, men must love their wives as they love themselves and as Christ loved the church. So husbands, you need to uh, have the self-discipline for your own self in order to look what Jesus has done and love your wife as Christ loved the church. Women, you are called to respect your husbands and obey them as Christ, excuse me, as the church obeys and serves Christ. And this idea of obedience really, really gets gnarly in our feminist culture today. But obedience simply means respecting the covenant. You're respecting the covenant and the, and the obligations that God has put in that relationship. And you are free to disobey if your husband is being the blockheaded fool. But to be clear, there is a mutual servanthood here in the text. Uh, Christ serves the church. He did that, right? He laid down his life. We could call that a, a service. But then the church serves Christ, which is why many times churches call this sort of thing a service. So we, we are served by Christ in order to then serve him. Uh, but there's a mutual servanthood. There's a level of reciprocity here. Both husbands and wives are called to be servants. So don't miss that. Husbands and wives are both servants in the marriage. Um, one bear, one, the husband is the servant lord. The wife is the servant helper. And that's why there is one lord. Jesus is the servant lord. And the church is the servant helper. And one bears the totality of covenantal responsibility, that is the husband's, and, and the husband initiates in that. So the husband is supposed to get, he's supposed to get down on one knee and propose. So I've seen that backwards and I thought, that's icky. It's the only word I could think of. <laughs> And it's because the, the man is supposed to initiate. He's the one that's striking the new covenant. He initiates. He gets down on one knee as a servant Lord and says, will you marry me? And so if she does that, if, any, if you're a godly man, you will say, get up. That's ridiculous. But So one bears the responsibility, but the other submits to and responds to that. So the other submits to the covenant head and responds to the initiation of the covenant head. And one's primary duty is love. That's the husband, right? The other's primary, primary, primary duty, his primary duty is respect. So one loves, one respects. That's the orientation. And what Paul does here is anchor the whole thing not in biological preferences, but in heavenly priorities. Uh, we do not dislike homo marriage because it is, in fact, icky. Uh, it is that. But we dislike it 
because it sullies the covenant that it's supposed to re represent. So we do, we, that's why even in the confession we talked about one man and one woman. A, a man is not to have multiple wives. A wife is not to have multiple women. Why? Multiple husbands. Why? Because he represents Christ. She represents the church. There is one Savior, not multiple saviors. That's the reason. Now, when marriage is polluted in a culture like it is in ours, what we have is a false picture. It's a false representation of Christ. A husband with another woman who is not his wife is preaching a false covenant, and it preaches to the world that Christ is unfaithful to the church. A woman with another man who is not her husband is also a false covenant. It preaches to the world that the church is allowed to be idolaters. Now, marriage, according to the Bible, is not a thing people just made up because of evolutionary progress. Rather, it is God's idea. It's God's picture of what his relationship to sinful humanity looks like. How does God orient himself towards sinful humanity? He sends his son to die. And then he gets a bride and he takes care of his bride. So, as we ask, how shall we then live? The reason Paul says that husbands must love their wives is because wives need that love. They need that love. And the reason he says wives must respect their husbands is because husbands need that respect. These requirements are, in fact, commands. They are not a suggestion. Husbands must love. They must love. And wives must respect. And this is why Herman Bovink, he puts it this way, Within married life and within the family, it is the husband as the head who, in his appearance and glory, radiates the image and glory of God. And the wife has the calling in obedience to her husband to display his glory. Now, what's, what's at stake in a marriage is, is glory. What's at stake is projecting what it means to work together in the covenant. Every marriage is preaching something and it's either going to be glorious or it's going to be a pollution when husbands do not love and wives do not respect regardless of whether or not you're receiving what you should be receiving from the other keep that in mind she doesn't respect me so i'm not going to love her you're wrong <laughs> you're called to love her even if she's not respecting because probably the respect isn't there because the love isn't there and it all goes back to the covenantal head. Side note. But when, that st when this stuff doesn't happen, the glory becomes darkened. Marriage becomes a false picture. And the picture that we are displaying, it becomes polluted. And the light of glory that shone through, it, it shines through authority and submission, love and respect, all of that is how God intends to display his covenantal love to a watching world. And these two concepts, love and respect, are essential to a healthy marriage. Any breakdown in a marriage, I believe, can always be traced back to these things. A husband who isn't loving and a wife who isn't respecting. And that, that is the foundation of it all. And that's why, by the way, that's why any culture that wants to live in utter rebellion against God, their first target is the family. How do I know that? Genesis 3. The serpent goes to the woman. 
who did not have the covenantal responsibility at that moment. And then we have sin into the world. Now, as intimated earlier, the orientation that a husband and a wife have in marriage is different. The husband is oriented towards dominion, while the wife is oriented towards her husband. That doesn't mean women do not participate in dominion. It means it just can, it looks different. The family is central to the woman's duties. She first and foremost exercises her responsibility under God in her husband and children. For the husband, he has a much broader set of responsibilities. The man is oriented towards his work and his calling under God, in what we call the dominion mandate. Um, it's been said, men live to work and women work to live. And I think that's true. I think that's a good way of putting it. The family is still part of man's responsibility, obviously, that goes without saying, but because he needs help to accomplish the work, he needs his wife to help take care of his family so he can serve God as a Lord and a steward in the world. And that's why the ish, the man, needed the isha, the woman. The work was too much for one man. He could not accomplish it by himself. And in even men who are prone to overwork, um, which I, I understand that temptation and that feeling. Uh, it's an easy, easy thing to just get lost in your work. God created us that way, to work. And even if you were able to do all that you could set out to do, which you can't, you still need help. You'll never be able to just finish it all. You need a woman. Now, husbands then must remember that they are prophets, priests, and kings under God, and so are women to the same degree in Christ, but they're called under God to, to labor in the world for the sake of the kingdom. But the first thing a husband must know is that he is a living, breathing snapshot of Jesus Christ. He needs to be a man of conviction, a man of truth. He must be courageous, utterly selfless. He must be sacrificial. And on top of all of that, he needs to be tender towards his wife and his kids. He has to be. He must be hardened toward the world. Why? Well, it's a chaotic mess in need of order. That's the project. What's out there? That's the project. So he needs to be hardened toward the world in order to accomplish that. You cannot be soft towards the world because the world will eat you and spit you out. You have to be hard toward the world. But he needs to be soft toward his family because he needs them and their help to accomplish the mission. So husbands, you have the distinct task of exhibiting Christ in the marriage relationship. So what does that look like? First, a man simply must love Jesus Christ more than anything in the world. He must be committed to prayer. He must be committed to the Bible. He must be committed to the church. He must be committed to the means of grace. He must be a man of conviction and truth. He needs to love Christ more than anything in the world. He must be committed to the glory of God in the gospel of the kingdom. He must be committed to it. No one should have to ask. I don't know if he's committed to Christ and his mission in the world. They just see it. You don't have to say anything. They ju you just see it. A man whose spiritual tank is empty means that he cannot give to his wife and kids what they need. So he must love Christ. Second, husbands ought to exhibit the masculine trait of responsibility and leadership. We've talked about this already, but the main point is they must be men and they must be masculine men. Responsibility and leadership. They do not blame shift 
and make excuses. They take responsibility, which is what Job did when he offered sacrifices on behalf of his family, just in case they might have sinned. So men, you need to be praying for your wives and interposing for your children as well. Uh, And I, I like how Doug puts this. He defines leadership this way. Leadership means a pattern of sacrifice such that when you make a decision, everybody wants to go where you lead. People follow courage, right? Wives will follow a decisive man who knows how to sacrifice in such a way that she will joyfully follow. People are always attracted to courage, be it in politics, in the church, um, in, in the marriage relationship. I think it's especially true there. Women have no trouble respecting a man with courage. Third, a man must have a mission. What is it he intends to do with his life? He has to have a mission. What sort of job will he work so that he can put food on the table? Uh, as it's, I've said it before, and it sort of floats around some of our circles, but civilizations are built by men with families to feed. So that's how you build a society. Men work, labor, and they provide food for their family. But what goals does he have in life that she can assist him with? Uh, a, a wife does not really get excited to respect a man with zero ambition. What goals does he have? Uh, no one wants to follow a person who is lost. Coupled with this sense of purpose is a sense of commitment to the marriage, a sense of commitment to the bride of Christ, a genuine desire to work hard and provide. Husbands, that do, who, husbands who do these things will love Well, what sins does he need to avoid in the marriage? We already talked about Adam's chief sin a couple weeks ago, the sin of abdication. Uh, We call this a revolt against maturity. I like to say it's a revolt against responsibility. Um, Husbands need to avoid laziness and instability. Those are two things that will crush a woman's heart. Someone who is lazy and completely unstable, um, doesn't take certain things seriously, is just sort of gone with the wind, right? They're just trying to, uh, you know, do whatever comes, whenever it comes. They don't uh, really care too much about it. A wife wants to know that her husband is actually working hard um, and isn't just keep, he doesn't just keep getting fired from jobs because he's slothful late, inconsiderate. Another thing to avoid is bitterness. Paul says in Colossians 3.19, very clearly, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Now, why would he say that? Because husbands are great at blaming everyone else rather than their own stupidity. We are good at that. And being dumb is yet another sin to avoid, so add that to the list. Being dumb looks like making excuses, refusing responsibility, and um, blaming your wife, pegging her for all your marital woes. If she just respected me more, then I would be, it would be easier to love her. I mean, imagine if Christ took that posture. If the church just loved me more, then I would give myself to her. It's, that's why I said it's being dumb. That's being dumb. And to be clear, this sort of thing is not headship, it's cowardice. So add that to the list too. Wives, you're next. 
What does a godly wife look like? First, she too, like the husband, must love Christ more than anything else in the world. She's committed to prayer, to scripture, the church. She's committed to her covenant Lord, Jesus Christ. She trusts him faithfully day in and day out because ultimately he know, she knows that Christ is the one who's going to sustain her husband. A woman who is too busy with her own selfish things cannot help her husband and thus she cannot help mature her kids. She too needs the grace of Christ to sustain her. Second, she is to be a feminine woman, which we covered last week. She needs to be a feminine woman. There are certain things that apply. And again, that was last week. You can, if you missed it, you can listen. But third, she is to be oriented towards respecting her husband. She's to be oriented towards respecting her husband. To respect means to be gentle towards him in humility, even when he's wrong. Uh, and he can sometimes be wrong. I know it's rare, but, you know, <laughs> on the off chance that he's wrong, you know, be respectful. Um, re- how do you respect your husband? Respect means being thoughtful towards him, being thoughtful towards him, um, offering encouragement. Uh, not treating him like he's another child, which means husbands don't act like another child. Uh, respect means being genuinely and physically responsive to him. If men are called to initiate, women are called to be responsive. So be responsive to him. Uh, respect means speaking well of him and not poorly, something I've seen firsthand as a pastor, uh, where you talk poorly about your husband in front of other women. Um, Ultimately, respect is a gentle disposition of the heart that comes alongside the husband, offering him whatever he needs at that moment in time. Helpers, I should go without saying, are to help. You are his queen, wives. You are his queen. Show him how much you value him. A godly wife loves her Savior, is oriented to helping her husband, and is busy building a home for the glory of God. She controls her tongue. She is a locked garden. Her husband has the keys. And as we saw last week in Proverbs 31, she is skilled in making fruit. Now, what sins do wives need to avoid? Well, wives need to avoid being contentious. She must control her tongue, and she must avoid usurping her husband's leadership. This always happens. A man who is passive and abdicating will always have, this is the Ahab spirit, you will always have a Jezebel who will gladly take control. And that dynamic is a disaster. It's a disaster. Um, As I mentioned last week, wives need to avoid outward-only submission. That is looking quite submissive in her dress and her manner. Uh, in her demeanor when dealing with the world, but she's a tyrant at home. Uh, Wives shouldn't be like Job's wife, who told Job to curse God and die after things fell apart. Uh, Don't join the devil in tossing out accusations. Wives also need to avoid bitterness and resentment towards their husbands. And when seeing a man struggle, it's easy for a woman to resent him for his failure. It's very easy. Um, Men can be bitter and angry. Women can be resentful and spiteful. So avoid this. Perhaps the most crucial sin to avoid in marriage for a wife is being disrespectful, which makes sense because being respectful is her primary calling. And Satan would love nothing more than a wife whose respect is always, always conditional. 
I want to give a final word on marriage. Whenever I do premarital counseling, and I've done quite a bit the past few months, which is a joy, I enjoy talking about these concepts, especially um, when it's just, you kind of laugh and you look, think back to your own life when, you know, when I was 20 and knew, knew everything. Uh, but I always try to help the participants see that what they're entering into is a beautiful covenant which requires everything they've got. Uh, there's no possible way to have a healthy marriage relationship, husband and wife, if, if one or both are unwilling to throw themselves entirely into it. Did Christ only go halfway? After he took the beating and the scourging, did he say, I can't do the rest? He didn't go halfway. Then we must not either. Going all in means helping the other become more like Jesus Christ every single day. Your job, husbands and wives, is to help each other be more holy. That's your primary calling. Help the other person be more holy. To truly embrace the gospel message and its attendant ramifications for you as a man and as a woman. And when the gospel sits at the center of your relationship, you can be vulnerable with each other. You can enjoy the blessing of sexual intimacy together and the unity that it represents. You can truly be one flesh. But it requires everything about you, your spiritual condition, your psychological condition, all of these aspects of who you are come together in this covenant. Marriage creates a space where the two of you can be open and forthcoming with the other to essentially be your true selves. There's no facades in marriage. There's no fakery. There's no people-pleasing. There's no more trying to sell yourself in such a way that the other person is willing to buy. Just complete freedom in Christ. Just complete freedom in Christ to give to, of yourselves to one another each and every day. To have a true and faithful companion. To promise, to love, and to cherish. To have and to hold. And to be known is great. It's great to be known. But it, to be known and loved, that's the glory of the gospel taking root in a marriage. Because nobody knows the other like your spouse. I mean, you know each other. You know the sins, the foibles, the immaturity, the, all of these things. You know what those are. But to still love, that's beautiful. And without a doubt, husbands and wives, over the years, they grow to know each other more and more. Every single day, they've, they've seen each other at their absolute worst, and yet when the gospel takes root, they still say, I do, and I still do, and I still do. And when someone knows you like this and loves you all the same, how is that not the gospel in action? Isn't that what Christ has done? He knew us at our worst, and yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he saw even the very best in us, and it was filthy rags, and he died for it. And having died, he raised and loves us eternally. And this is the central feature of all godly marriages, to truly know the absolute worst about someone and yet love them unconditionally. That's the glory. That's awe-inspiring glory. And it's an awe-inspiring mystery as well. So marriage is thus not an end in itself. Marriage must be the picture of Christ and his church. And so make sure that you know the gospel and are immersed in it Christ's love is the foundation of, of marriage, and when the hearts of a husband, the hearts of husbands and wives, when they're, they're swelling with gospel joy, everything the Bible says, much of it I mentioned earlier, is simple and easy. After all, love for one another grows best in the soil of forgiveness, and isn't that what we have in Christ? Let's pray. Father, we glorify you. Your word is amazing. It is 
so insightful and we ask that you would help us as husbands and wives to reflect what it is you teach us in your word. Lord, give us patience. Help us as husbands to love and help us help our wives to respect and help us to look like that picture of Christ and the bride. We give you the glory today in Christ's name. Amen.